Welcome to the Merkle, where we showcase the experiences and learnings of only the best builders and investors in Web3. I'm your host, Yang, and let's kick it off. Today, we're speaking with Kevin Joe from Galai Capital. Previously head of trading for Kraken Digital Asset Exchange, Kevin has been running Galois for over five years and has made inciting views over the possibility of an Ethereum fork during the merge and was one of the few early investors who caught the Luna collapse. Kevin, it's a pleasure to have you on the show and I'd like, love to dive deeper into your background and area of expertise in crypto markets and tap into your experience and learnings for our listeners right here. Uh, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, thanks for having me, Young. Um, so, you know, as for my own background, uh, I got started in crypto in 2011. Um, and mostly for the first two years, I was just kind of a lurker on the Bitcoin talk forums, uh, just trading my uh, own PA. Uh, and then in 2013, I joined uh, a small startup called Buttercoin. It was one of the very early exchanges uh, in crypto. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the the timing on that was pretty bad, and the winter of 2013 really killed that business, uh, and we were not able to raise uh, a Series A. So, uh, you know, Buttercoin closed down, um, and after that, uh, so that was two years um, at Buttercoin. And 2015, I joined uh, Kraken, uh, where I ran their OTC desk for uh, another two years, um, and then after that, decided to start up shop for myself, uh, which is um, the advent of, of Galois Capital. And uh, primarily, we're you know we're a trading desk, and we focus on uh, you know two two main things. So there's sort of the manual trading side, and there's the um, algo trading side. Uh, on the manual side, you know it's everything ranging from like OTC trading, basis trades, yield farming, uh, special sits, um, a little bit of discretionary long short. Well, we're mostly market neutral, um, but we have a little bit of a sleeve for um, discretionary uh, long short. And then on the algo side. Uh, we mostly focus on HFT market making. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the scope and the rundown of, of you know, my background and, and sort of what we do here at Galois. Could you tell me more about your role in Kraken and whether it influenced you in any shape or form? Uh, sure. So, you know, I, I, for Kraken, I was actually only there for two years. Uh, so that this was like, you know, most of 2015 and 2016 um, and then a little bit in 2017. So about two years total. Um, and uh, my role there, you know, we were fairly small back then. Um, it was actually even bigger before I joined. But just as I joined a month later, there were huge layoffs within the firm. I think about half to two thirds of the staff uh, got laid off. And it was just a very brutal time in the market. I think a lot of crypto companies were suffering, uh, you know, in that kind of like mid 2015 era. And, uh, and this is, I think, this is uh, before Kraken listed uh, Ethereum, which was, I think, in the spring late spring of 2016. Um, so, you know, and that, that's kind of, you know, one of the things that I think really saved the business and really drove revenues, uh, you know, so that, you know, finally there was like kind of light at the end of the tunnel and it was clear that maybe the business was going to survive instead of almost sure failure, almost sure death. Uh, you know, I think during my time there, uh, there were at least two points where I thought to myself, well, if somehow I got fired or I left the company at this point, I would not exercise my options because this company is clearly not going to make it, right? Um, so, you know, it was a very uh, difficult time. Um, and, you know, and then even then, even after the layoffs, um, there were a lot of uh, salary cuts. So, you know, a lot of us um, at the firm, uh, we elected to basically voluntarily get our salary slashed in return for more equity. 
uh, which turned out to be a good deal. But at the time, at least for the next six months or the next 12 months, it, it, it was looking like a really bad deal. Um, so it was a very trying time, I think, in, in Kraken's history. Um, and I think, you know, I, I've heard these sayings before that in most startups, uh, you know, you're, you're facing certain death like two or three times before you make it, right? So those were maybe two of the times that, that Kraken really faced almost certain death and somehow defied death, like Houdini'd out of it. Thanks for that. I think in a volatile entrepreneurial environment like crypto itself, there is always that temptation to start your own thing. Curious, what was the impetus behind you leaving Kraken and starting Galoy? And what about that process fit in with your expectation and what did not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think maybe just starting off uh, with motivation, you know, I think ever since I was young, I had always wanted to start a business on my own and just never really found uh, the opportunity or the courage to actually do it. Right. And I think, you know, for my entire life, uh, at least up until uh, my mid 20s, uh, I lived uh, and, I, and I, I did things in a fairly uh, careful way. Right. I did things as things would be expected of me. Right. Whether those expectations uh, are coming from parents, from friends, from my peers uh, who are all looking for jobs you know, in college, you know, professors, uh, you know, th these sorts of folks. Right. And it wasn't until I think uh, crypto uh, or Bitcoin at that time where I really stepped out on my own and really took a risk against the prevailing wisdom of everybody else telling me that it was probably a bad idea. Um, and, you know, so um, so I, I think in some ways, I think really um, making that leap to actually be an entrepreneur, it's uh, it's one of those things that requires um, a bit of courage at the start. And it's really like, you know, you're looking uh, over the cliff and you basically are thinking, well, should I jump? Should I not jump? Uh, if you do jump, you basically have to build a parachute on the way down before you crash. Uh, and hopefully you can, you can build that in time. Um, and it's really that moment of looking over the edge that I think is the scariest. And, and I think once you make that jump, um, then, well, I mean, you're already in free fall. You can't, you can't go back anyway. So, you know, then it's just a lot less scary uh, just because of that. But I think it's a, that decision point on that cliff about jumping uh, where, where it is the scariest. And I think for me, it just, um, based on the life that I'd lived, um, it was just, uh, it was difficult to make that jump, right, um, earlier in my life. Now, looking back, that's exactly what I should have done. Um, in fact, I, you know, I, I actually went through uh, six years of school. So I got my undergrad for four years. I got, I got my first one year master's and I got my second one year master's. Right. So what I should have done probably should have just done like two or three years of college, dropped out, entered the working force. And then instead of working for like four years, work for like three years instead, right. Or maybe even two and a half years, something like that. And then immediately start, uh, my startup. I think that would have been uh, much more perfect timing. I could have saved, you know, a lot of years. I could have saved, you know, at least like five years, uh, of my life uh, by doing it that way. Um, but, uh, you know, given who I was at the time, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in a position to do that. I didn't have, uh, you know, the, the, the courage to make that leap. Um, and it's only, it's only more clear in retrospect, which is why these days, you know, when I talk to, um, you know, candidates that are applying, uh, for, uh, a role at, at our firm, uh, some of them sometimes are still in school, right. And they're just looking for like a summer internship or whatnot. And some of these candidates I think are, are quite good. And I always ask them, you know, what do you think about dropping out of school? Right. And almost always the answer is uh, that, you know, they can't really drop out of school. You know, the parents are paying for it or they're just too scared to do it. They give always some kind of excuse, an excuse that I would have given myself um, at that time. Right. Like when I was that age, I would have given that same excuse. But now as I'm older, now I start to realize that 
that's exactly what it was, right? Which was that there was some kind of underlying fear about really trying to stake a claim in the world and kind of just like procrastinating, right? Like I, I did my undergrad, uh, I finished in 2009. This is one year right after um, the economy entirely uh, collapsed, right? So I thought, well, I'm just gonna procrastinate on getting a job and I'm just gonna go get my, get another degree, right? And then like to some extent, I even my second master's uh, later on. So it's sort of like, it's always this kind of fear of really just going out on your own to really face the working world. And then even more of a leap to, to then be, uh, you know, your own boss and, and start a company. Um, and, uh, you know, and especially these days, as I reflect back, I just think that school itself is kind of a scam, right? And that's, you know, that's kind of like, the, the, the Peter Thiel kind of uh, uh, thinking about it, right? But I agree, I think, and now having gone through so much school and now having worked for a bit and started my own company, reflecting back, I do think school is a bit of a scam. You know, at, at the end of the day, you know, you look at the past and there's been just tons of degree inflation, right? Today's uh, PhD was worth yesterday's master's. Yesterday's master's was worth, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, today's master's is worth yesterday's bachelor's, right? And so, so on and so forth, right? And then on top of that, tuition costs have gotten uh, exponentially greater. So if the costs are getting uh, higher exponentially and the value is getting lower, at some point there was a crossing point. I think that crossing point was hit long ago, right? Um, so that, that's sort of my take on it. And uh, sort of, you know, if I could redo things, how I would have done things differently and reflecting back on, on my own career. Certainly. And I think not enough people realize that there is this narrow period of time. Um, I think it's before we're 25 or something where we are more physiologically inclined to new ideas and more open to taking risks. Um, our mind is more flexible during this period of time. And it's perhaps the best time to start something of our own. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you on that. And I actually read that same study. It turns out that, uh, you know, according to the study, analytical ability peaks out at about 25, right? So like, why is it that we put kids through school for such a long period of time? And then like, let's say that golden zone is between 20 and 30, right? Where analytical ability is, is peak, right? Why is it like, just so, um, like some of it is like cut into like school and stuff like that. Like maybe schooling should really just end at 18. Maybe we just get more years out of it, you know? Um, something like that. I think that would be, or at least like maybe like, you know, 19, maybe, you know, uh, maybe we can just get more productive years um, out of those, those golden years um, for analytical ability. Now, obviously, like a lot of other things come later, like the value of experience, you know, the wisdom of having lived more life, um, you know, that, that probably progresses, uh, you know, long into old age, uh, you know, before like uh, senility and dementia, uh, you know, sits, sets in, um, you know, that always gets better. But I think at least for pure analytical skill, I think we're, a lot of it is just kind of wasted, just uh, doing puzzle problems, right? Like on a homework or on a test, like we're really like how much more productivity could we have in the world if that was actually put to, to real work? Totally. I'd like to dive in into your long-term views about crypto here. I think something very um, interesting about participants in the crypto space, um, whether it's an investor or a trader, is that most of us believe in the growth of Web3 as a whole, and most of us have a very pointed view of how this growth will take place. In your very well-written piece titled State of the Market, you talk about how projects could be categorized into a 2 times 2 matrix of low-grift, high-grift, low-utopianism, high-utopianism uh, on each axis. 
So there are low-grift, low-utopianism projects like exchanges and high-grift, high-utopianism projects that appear to be framed as short-term cash grabs. Could you walk me through your thinking and explain how this influences how you invest and trade? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, a lot of this uh, uh, type of categorization, I think, is a lot more useful from considering, uh, you know, long-short plays. You know, that that's not uh, the majority of the trades that we do. The majority of the trades that we do are much more like structured ARBs uh, or, you know, very carefully studied mechanics and really figuring out how to hedge out uh, risk in some of these like more obscure plays. Um, but I think in terms of long short, um, you know, I do find it very useful to categorize things along those these two dimensions of grift and utopianism. Um, you know, ha having already seen at this point about five bull and bear cycles, um, it, it seems to me that every cycle is basically the same, right? Which is that some kind of very good kind of technology is developed, right? Which spurs on the growth of uh, like a bull run. And then at that point, tons of capital is raised by all these VCs. Uh, so then that basically that kind of capital supply entices new entrepreneurs to invent new ideas. And then the second wave is generally a little bit worse than the first wave that created the bull run in the first place. Um, and then eventually, uh, because there's so much momentum, those investments, even though eventually five years down the line don't work out in the intermediate term, works out very well. Right? And VCs are able to, uh, you know, mark up their portfolios 5x, 10x, you know, 20x, you know, sometimes even more than that. Um, and then from that, a second fund is raised by these VCs. And then with now enormously more capital, because the second fund is usually many times greater than the first fund, now new entrepreneurs enter into the space. But now these ideas get even more harebrained, and even wackier, even griftier. The scammers start coming in. Uh, and then these all get funding and some of them even do well. And then maybe there's like a third fund that's raised, right? So there's always these kinds of like um, human driven, like greed driven um, uh, emotional cycles, I think, within the space. Now, now each time it, it, it's not exactly the same. You know, you, if you look at like, let's say, like uh, ICO summer um, of uh, 2017 versus DeFi summer of, you know, 2020, um, you know, they're, they're obviously we're talking about like fairly different subsectors within the industry, but nevertheless, the idea is still the same, which is that you still have this capital, which is then chasing ideas, and then the ideas get watered down, get scammier, get griftier, uh, get more utopian in its construct, uh, and then eventually uh, the bubble bursts because there's even in a very short time frame, these projects cannot sustain uh, their growth or their returns. Uh, because they're just that bad intrinsically. And then finally, the entire space goes down the other way, also or very reflexively. Uh, and then everything starts evaporating, you know, in, in kind of like in the same kind of cycle, right? Which is like returns get bad, you know, firms stop raising money, capital dries up, entrepreneurs leave the space, returns get worse, so on and so forth, right? And that, then that starts spiraling down, uh, downhill on the other side. Uh, until finally, you arrive at the dead of the bear market, where basically uh, no person in their right mind would want to stay in the space. Only truly hardcore uh, believers in crypto, in, in the tech, people who actually are in it for the tech. And then these people are the ones who grind it out and build out the next set of investable uh, things with very little capital because all the capital is dried up, which then eventually two years down the line, three years down the line, spurs on the growth of the next cycle, right? And triggers the next bull, bull run, right? So this is basically 
you know, how it goes. And I, and I think a lot of it is because of the nature of capital itself, itself, you know, chasing momentum, right? Like as returns go well, people think that returns will go well, right? And as managers do well, they also have a great incentive for um, basically creating a mythology around themselves that they are very good at managing capital, right? And then if the LPs buy into that, then they give them even more money, which then further kind of, you know, reinforces it because then, you know, in, in some circular way, um, some of these guys can say, well, X, Y, and Z, very famous capital allocator allocated to me. That's also a very good signal. And the market is validating that I am as good as I say I am. And therefore, even attracts even more capital, right? So everything is reflexive in that way. And capital kind of begets capital. Um, and, you know, that's how basically reputations are built. Uh, and then eventually things get a little bit too crazy, right? And then people start eventually investing into outright Ponzi's like Luna. Uh, that are not sustainable and then eventually uh, and blinded even by themselves right because at some point they start believing their own narrative right they, they they all the investors think that they're good at allocating capital all the all the founders are glad to have them on their cap table they they look at the numbers they're rich now you know clearly they must be geniuses right they start to believe their own uh they start to basically uh um you know uh, sniff their own farts and then eventually at that point um you know and then everything starts collapsing because then there's just no check on sanity about whether projects work or not. Just the very fact that they believe in them, they trick themselves into believing that it will work because how could their judgment be wrong after being so right for so long, right? So uh, that, that's basically like at a high level, abstractly, how I see each of these different cycles. It's really all the same uh, every single time, right? Um, and it's just in the minutia that, that it's a little bit different. Fascinating. So it seems like this two by two matrix, this mental model is not just a classification framework for a certain type of project, but it's also useful um, as a overall scatter plot where the number of projects in each quadrant kind of tells you where we are in the innovation cycle of crypto. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that actually investing in a bear market is actually uh, the best time to invest. And it's when uh, the projects are the most serious. Uh, the valuations are the lowest and you know that the founders are very dedicated because they have other opportunities they could just work for you know big tech company or a big uh, uh you know big uh, bank or whatever right a big crop trading firm or whatever so um i think that that's when the opportunities are the greatest and actually the opportunities are the absolute worst when you know seed round valuation 100 mil pre-product <laughs> and it's a ponzi i mean this, this is gonna end badly right but then like every all the vcs are bidding this stuff up so like it can't really trade anything below that, at least while there's still too much capital sloshing around. So basically every couple of years, we just need a huge amount of basically capital washout and basically a, a, a redistribution of those proceeds from people who were prudent, uh, from people who are not prudent to people who were prudent, right? And uh, that, that, that's basically happened um, every single cycle. Um, and I think it, it really is a testament though, I will say, to firms that have survived two or three cycles. Because then it shows that, uh, you know, even through the swings, right? So even though they, they probably did take massive drawdowns, um, you know, during some of the bear markets, the fact that they are able to survive means that they did not get too crazy. They didn't get too far over their skis and at least have some uh, prudence about things, right? That at least in the back of their minds, they still kept in mind that macro still matters, right? And no, I'm not talking about macro like the Fed macro. I'm talking about like the crypto macro. The crypto macro still matters and the beta itself still matters. And timing the beta is in many ways even more important 
than stock selection, right? Or stonk selection or coin selection or whatever, right? Like in some ways that that, if you can, if you can get that right, then the amount of returns you're going to preserve, you know, the, the losses that you can avoid and the profits that you can make uh, are, are many, many times greater than basically, you know, just round tripping a 10x back to zero, right? Very fascinating. The macro economy is, of course, a huge thing in crypto investing. And I'm curious if you take a pointed view on that. And um, how do you think this entire macro cycle kind of interacts with the innovation cycles within crypto itself? Yeah, so what, what I would say is that, uh, you know, th there's a lot to consider about how it, within a cycle, all the mini narratives that drive into each other, right? And uh, I think that, uh, you, know, you know, let's say we're in a bull run, right? But something has kind of played out already, right? So we're in, we're in the 2020 bull run. DeFi summer has already played out. Finally, yields are starting to dry up. This narrative is, you know, reasonably healthy, but dying, right? And the VCs still have more money to allocate. So they, got, they have to basically invent a new narrative as justification for two things. One, charging two and 20 on effectively market beta, right? And then two, uh, you know, basically uh, finding new investable assets, right? In a narrative that can last, right? And we saw that attempted with a number of things, right? You know, first there was like, uh, you know, there's basically like, uh, you know, NFTs, uh, which, you know, for some time didn't work, right? And then eventually worked later as another narrative later. Uh, there was like the L1 battles, um, there was like the metaverse, there was like Web3, there was, uh, you know, GameFi. There were all these like mini narratives along the way. Um, each one, I think, progressively weaker than the more organic DeFi narrative, right? That one was kind of the beginning of that bull market. And that was like the more natural narrative. The later narratives are all a, all a little bit more contrived. Now, I, I, I'm not going to say that they're 100% contrived, right? It's just that progressively they become more and more contrived, right? So the second in line, after DeFi, is less contrived than the third in line, right? Each one is successively more contrived because there needs to be justification for allocating new capital out, right? If the, if the actual correct thing to do for the super long term, right, which is like 10, 20 years, is to just keep allocating into DeFi uh, and then return the rest of the capital, um, then that doesn't make sense for their business, right? It doesn't make sense for the VC business to do that, right? It's better to, you know, because even then, like some VC funds are like five years, three years, seven years, you know, the timeframes are still shorter than multiple decades, right? So in that sense, like there is still some timing consideration. There is, and there is still some kind of free upside or free optionality, uh, you know, in how the payout is structured, right? On the 20% uh, incentive fee, it's collected on, basically profitability. The downside is kind of capped. You know, there are high watermarks, there are some clawback clauses like that, but for the most part, it's a free option, right? On, on LPs and their money. So, you know, it makes no business sense for these VCs to say, oh, well, you know, we've run out of ideas and investable ideas. Uh, there's no new narrative. We're just gonna sporadically randomly invest into the known ideas, uh, but random, you know, projects here and there uh, that look good, right? That you can't deploy that much capital doing that. You need to create a new narrative and you need to drive that to fruition. Now, fortunately for you as a VC, uh, all the other VCs are in the same boat. So they could just collectively all agree on, you know, it doesn't have to be outright collusive, right? 
It can just be that there's some natural gravitating pull towards like a seemingly plausible narrative. Everybody piles on because it's in all their interest to reinforce that narrative, to create that positive reinforcing cycle among each other. And then all of the VCs benefit, right? And then that basically drives the capital formation, drives, uh, you know, company uh, foundings, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, long story short, I do think that a lot of the very recent bubbles in crypto were largely driven by this kind of capital formation. And if it wasn't for the fact that there was so much momentum from LPs ultimately, greedier for more returns after things have gone well, then the bubbles would not have been as severe on the upside, but also not as severe on the downside. Meaning that the business cycle within the crypto macro could have been smoothed out if there wasn't this kind of, um, you know, this kind of momentum in the return seeking behavior of LPs and to some extent the fostering of that by the GPs and the VCs. I see. I also realized that you frequently allude to Greco-Roman history and philosophy in your tweets uh, and market commentary. Is there a particular reason why um, you reference these and um, how does this influence the way you look at the world? Um, yeah, so, you know, I think uh, what I was saying about the crypto cycles being uh, basically the same thing, I think uh, all of history is basically the same too, you know, and there's a lot of lessons that we can learn uh, from history, not just sort of like, um, you know, the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic those days, uh, you know, and, and I do have a particular interest there, you know, just personally, uh, just for fun, uh, but just in, in all of the stories that are told in history, right, you know, just uh you know, like, for example, uh, you know, recently I, I was talking about uh, the Three Kingdoms era uh, period in China, right, where there were three warring kingdoms and, you know, they're vying for uh, power in the land, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the story of Christ himself, for example, um, you know, and, and basically that episode. And you can see kind of how all these different stories, uh, you know, unfold and how they kind of like adapt over time. But at least there are some common threads that are always kind of the same. And I think a lot of that is because you know, as much as technology has advanced, people themselves um, are still about biologically the same as they used to be thousands of years ago, maybe even tens of thousands of years ago, right? So a lot of the driving forces, um, you know, that, 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 that motivate people, you know, like uh, I remember this quote from Nietzsche and he said, there's basically only three forces, right? And it's like the belly, uh, the penis and the ego, right? Those are the only three forces in the world, basically, right? And everything else can be boiled down into one of those three things, right? Uh, you know, maybe there's other things. Maybe there's like kin selection. You know, there's there's all these like constructed values that we have, notions of you know loyalty, notions of you know like uh, uh, you know camaraderie and stuff like that. But but for the most part, I would say that's roughly about right. There's not that much more, right? So I think that's why we see that a lot of these stories that have played out in history so such so long ago before any technology even existed, right? Um, still, a lot of those stories kind of ring true, and analogies appropriately can be um, can be made uh, to to those times. So I, I particularly do like studying you know psychology, history, philosophy, um, a lot of things that you know, in some ways uh, are not very, uh, very popular, uh, I would say in like crypto, where it's kind of like the meeting of like finance trading and, and, and you know, technology uh, and, you know, cryptography and stuff, right? Uh, but I always find it, uh, you know, I, and I also find all that stuff super fascinating too, but I was, I also find a lot of other fields, uh, you know, very interesting, you know, literature, history, everything. Oh, interesting. I've always been a huge fan of literature on war and strategy as well. I've read The Romance of Three Kingdoms, The Art of War, um, 
book of five rings super interesting stuff um i i love to dive deeper into how exactly you use um, these models um, in your daily life um, are you mapping the conflicts uh, and incentives um, of what we see in the crypto world today to these historical events yeah uh, and actually you know but before I, I get into that i just wanted to say uh, also a big fan of the book of five rings and if i could make some recommendations for the listeners um for folks that are interested in uh in strategy i would say you know, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, Art of War, but that can be overdone a little bit. I think The Art of War and The Prince can be overdone a little bit, uh, but, you know, still good books. Um, then there's Book of Five Rings. Um, there's Maxims by uh, Francois de la Rochefoucauld, uh, which I thought uh, was really quite excellent. This is a little bit more about, like, court politics. Um, and then um, I think in terms of uh, other strategy, there was, uh, there was one more that I forget, but it was also a good one. Maybe I'll come back to that. Uh, but anyway, to answer your question about you know how it um, how it affects how we think about the markets, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I I, I very much consider um, to to extreme extents um, people's incentives. And at the end of the day, there's a, this common saying that um, you know it's what people do that matters, not you know what people say, right? Like talk is cheap, actions are expensive. And I particularly want to look for things that are very expensive, where people are putting real things at risk, right? There's, there's, there's sort of these like, um, you know, colloquial wisdoms, right? Like for example, Taleb's idea about like skin in the game, for example, right? That is an unforgeable signal, right? Um, let's look at other things. Like th there's also this common saying that courage is one of the only virtues that cannot be faked, right? So that's also maybe a good rule of thumb, right? So we have all these like different heuristics, right? When thinking about uh, the motives of people. And I think in crypto, it's no different, right? So as much as people talk about ideology, and that can be a motivation, I also think very carefully about people's pocketbook and what makes sense. You know, one of the things that I brought up about uh, this proof of work fork, for example, is that it's not really conceivable for me that the miners would not try to do a fork because their revenue is at stake, right? Regardless of any other type of argumentation that people could make, at the end of the day, why wouldn't they do something like that, right? Like if you were a miner, if I was a miner, that seems like a reasonable thing to do because if your revenues are all going away anyway, might as well just, you know, have a free option, do a gambit, um, regardless of any kind of pre, uh, pre-made agreements, you know, implicit agreements about, you know, it's fair. I mean, they were warned. I mean, they, they always knew proof of stake was going to come. That's, you know, that, nothing against the Ethereum Foundation on that. I mean, totally, totally agree. They, the miners were very, very uh, well, well aware of that and, and well ahead of time. But at the end of the day, when it finally comes down to merge time, yeah, why wouldn't they try to do a fork? I mean, this is, this is inevitable, right? Like, it's always one of those things where it's like, in retrospect, it just looks inevitable, right? As we're going through it, we have all this argumentation, everybody's saying that, oh, you know, there's just no way, they shouldn't do that, they can't do that. You know, and sometimes people confound these kinds of ideas, right? They so badly want something not to happen that they believe it to be so, right? This is a fatal flaw, I think, in the markets. You don't, you don't want to think that way when you're trading the markets, right, at least. Um, but in any case, I think when, when, when these motives are laid there, uh, you know, it's very easy to see. And also, you know, the Ethereum Foundation's own motives and whatnot, right? But I think all of that has kind of been um, kind of been addressed. You know, I've talked a lot about that in other podcasts. I've written a lot about that on Twitter. Um, but the main idea is that, yeah, thinking through incentives is, is extremely important. There is no lack for skill in crypto right now when it comes to developers and their technical coding abilities, right? What I think is truly lacking right now and is, has always been in short supply, 
in crypto are people who are very good at game theory and mechanism design. Now, these words are thrown around a lot. Now, now they've almost become caricatures of themselves, right? These kinds of words. Everybody is talking about game theory. Everybody's talking about incentives. But I feel like it's not truly considered down to the level that's necessary, not in the same way that the code itself is optimized, right? Like an MEV bot is optimizing and playing gas golf, not to that kind of level of scrutiny and that kind of detail um, are things handled on the mechanism design and uh, 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 game theory side. And I think that that's where a lot of the alpha can be derived, right? Just thinking very clearly about the differences between what people say and what people do and where their motives actually lie and what makes them more money. Generally, that covers, in my opinion, like maybe 90, it has explanatory power for like 90% of everything that happens in crypto, I would say. There's still some room for like ideology, all these other things, but I don't think it's as people make it out to be. I think it's like a 90-10 kind of thing. It's like 90% just people wanting to make more money and 10% like other beliefs and values. Um, and that's generally, well, at least what I've seen over the years. Fascinating. I really like your point on how the space is still relatively immature in understanding the incentives and managing these incentives um, behind various groups. Um, curious to hear if um, you have a pointed view on um, a certain incentive system or mechanism in the crypto world today that can be improved upon. And if so, how would you improve it? Yeah, you know, I think. Um... I can't, I can't uh, pinpoint anything just, you know, off of the top, uh, you know, right now, but I would say that mostly what I do is I don't really think about how to, how to, how to fix it because I think, I think a lot of these things are nearly impossible to fix, right? Like, like what I mean by that is that like, let's take the example of like VCs raising money for a first fund and then raising even more money for a second fund, so on and so forth, right? Like, can that actually be fixed or is that human nature, right? Like you look at like a really large capital allocator, let's say like a pension or an endowment, right? When the space is small, it's not investable. By the time it gets big, they're already late, right? And by the, by, by, and, and, and these guys are generally a bit more on the conservative side. They don't really want to take the risk first, right? Because even within their own uh, corporate structure, there's a lot of incentives at play, right? Like nobody gets fired for investing into SPY, right? No, nobody gets fired for you know buying government bonds, you know. But people could get fired for making a bad bet into some wacky new nascent technology, right? So by the time the narrative gets to a point and later into the cycle where it's sort of like it's so strong that it even pulls away all of the negative social capital that could get associated to a person within a pension fund or an endowment to suggest to invest in crypto, it's already super late in the cycle. And when they finally make that investment, it blows up the size of the second or third fund of VCs, which then causes an even bigger bubble, causing there to be even more capital to be digested later once things collapse, right? So now we're talking about like double digit billions instead of before maybe the collapse could only be, like, like if Luna collapsed earlier, it could have just been like single digit billions or like, you know, a triple digit uh, millions, right? But it, it kind of had to get to that point because there's just too much more capital piling in as long as it's still a bull run. So like, how do you actually solve that problem? Can you actually fix the incentive within the pension funds and the endowments where all of this kind of starts, right? Um, with these people who have career risk 
and will that career risk being de-risked once things have played out mid-cycle, late cycle, right? That's almost like an unsolvable problem, right? So like, th that's what I'm saying is that it, as much as I'm saying that there's like, there's some flack to be had about these VCs self-promoting themselves, ultimately the real motive behind all this, the real push for all of this is from the largest capital allocators wanting to make returns, right? The, it's not, you know, what, what would the VC do? Say, oh, we don't want to take that money. Then that's kind of crazy too, right? Like there's just, how, how could you in that situation? Like you, you, if you're a VC and you don't take that money, then your, your, your um, competitor is going to take that money. Right, and they're going to have higher management fees. They can maybe hire like you know higher quality people. They can hire maybe a bigger team. Right, you're still competing against all your other VC. Right, so so it's sort of like, is there any way out of this kind of like Gordian knot? I'm actually not so sure. Right, like I, I don't. In some ways, I'm actually a little bit pessimistic that there even are solutions because they're so deeply rooted in the human motive to make more money. Yeah, those seem to be, in essence, principal agent problems that um, maybe crypto could solve with some sort of incentive alignment mechanism. Just going back to the strategy point, um, I was just thinking, I, I just recalled this book that I really enjoyed. It was called The Art of Worldly Wisdom by Beltasia Gracian. I think, yeah, Gracian. Um, super interesting one. Oh, what was it called? Sorry, I don't think I read that one. What's that called? The Art of Worldly Wisdom. Art of Worldly Wisdom. Okay, I got to check that out. Uh, yeah, that sounds fun. Great. I really want to throw in an open question here. So if you had a crystal ball that could tell you anything about the future with 100% accuracy, but you can only ask one thing out of it, what would that one thing be? I, you know, as it relates to crypto, what I would like to ask is extremely taboo, which is, does Ethereum eventually get captured by the state? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I think um, I think we're beginning to see some of this um, already. In that, you know, very recently you have um, you know the whole banning of like uh, certain things that touch Tornado Cash, Tornado Cash itself, Tornado Cash, their their developer getting arrested. Um, you know, I think in some ways maybe. I'm going to watch what I say here. I'm trying to be very neutral about things, but maybe there was some wisdom in how a lot of the OG Bitcoiners and Satoshi approached this issue, right? And maybe they've distilled things down into certain sound bites that are, 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 are smarter than they initially seem, right? Um, so what I mean by that is, that, you know, first, you, you know, you look at Satoshi, um, he was uh, completely anonymous. He founded he founded Bitcoin completely anonymously. Uh, kind of makes sense. Um, you're starting to see some of that come back into crypto, um, just you know, just for fun, right? Like you know, with all the Twitter, everybody's like larping as a cat. I'm larping as a as a Roman uh, as a Roman senator. Um, but some of it now, you know, with the chilling effect for Tornado Cash, I imagine that new um, developers uh, who are doing certain risky protocols are going to be more anonymous, right? That that kind of just makes sense, right? Um, the other thing too is that there's always this kind of saying within uh, between the Bitcoiners um, that you know if you fix the money you fix the world, right? And it always it always seemed to me that there was always this divide between the Bitcoiners and the Ethereum's, where I would say it's basically money thesis versus tech thesis, right? And it's the opinion of the Bitcoiners that the tech doesn't matter. These are all just rounding errors at the end of the day. Anything which speeds up the money thesis is worthwhile. Anything that slows it down uh, is just a distraction, right? Well, the tech thesis guys, I think, 
are generally more optimistic people in general, right? Um, you know, they they think that there are many problems in the world, which I you know I agree. I think they're right about the, those different problems, and they will find a path to solve all these problems, right? And money is one of these problems, but there are so many other problems that the, the you know the the, the environment's being destroyed, um, the the globe is getting more warm, um, you know there are things that are unfair in the banking system, you know we're going to right the wrongs of the past, right? And that's sort of the idea behind tech thesis. We're going to just do things efficiently, better, um, and we're going to enfranchise people that were formerly disenfranchised, right? Um, it's very utopian in its goals, right? Um, not that Bitcoin isn't. I mean, the whole idea of just uh, completely tackling the money vertical is extremely utopian, right? It's only now that it's become less utopian because it's played out a little bit, right, in that in that favor, right? Um, but it's it's sort of you know this is fundamentally, I think, the disagreement between the Ethereans and Bitcoiners, um, and I think now you know maybe there is some wisdom, you know, given given a lot of things that have transpired, you know, with USDC, you know, this this and that, um, that. You know, may, maybe the Bitcoiners were onto something. Uh, you know, a lot of the OGs, maybe they were onto something. You know, because Bitcoin is really trying to solve a problem that most people don't think exists, right? But once you think it exists, then you see how important it is. It's it's immediately obvious how important it is, right? I think Ethereum is different in that it the problems are obvious, right? So nobody disagrees that the problems exist, right? It's more about whether the solutions actually work. Right. And that's very different. Right. One is a question about whether the problem exists. One is a question about what, whether the solution is correct. Right. And I think fundamentally there, those two groups see things just very differently. Um, I'm, I'm actually pretty neutral in that, in that I, uh, I actually hold uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now, to be fair, I actually do hold, you know, way more Bitcoin than Ethereum, um, but I can understand both sides of the argument. And I, I think it's too early to say, uh, you know, who's right or who's wrong. One thing that has always stood out to me is that when I see a lot of the, and I'm not talking about the Bitcoin Nazis, right? Because these guys uh, are just, they're fucking crazy, right? They, 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 they're just, they, by any means, they just want to win for their side, right? They're not reasonable people, right? So I agree with that. I really agree with the Ethereum people on that. The, the Bitcoin Nazis is a bit wild, right? Um, I'm starting to see that a little bit on the Ethereum side too, though, by the way. Like some of these guys only want to win for their team. They don't care about what's true. So I do see that a little bit forming. But I, I do agree that Bitcoin Nazis are the most toxic. Probably the Ethereum guys learned it from them. Um, but that being said, I mean, like the real OG, like, uh, you know, cypherpunks and the real OG, like Bitcoiners, um, you know, uh, you know, th these guys, um, you know, I think they, it seems to me when I talk to them, they have extremely good, they have an extremely good understanding of history, particularly monetary history, but even history in general, right? Um, and how the monetary system works, right? They, they're, they're, they're strong at macro. They're strong at understanding the foundations of money. They can talk about things about like seashell economies. Um, you know, Nick Sabo wrote some stuff about like the Kula Ring and stuff like that. Uh, you know, they, they, can, they can talk about, you know, what year the Federal Reserve was founded, Nixon closing the gold window, all this stuff, right? And it seems like on the Ethereum side, what they can talk to me about in depth is the intricacies of how things work in technology, right? They are just stronger devs, they're better devs, they're better technologists, right? They're just, they're very smart in that way. While the Bitcoiners, they're very smart in a different way. They're very smart about like history, about monetary history, of money in general, that sort of thing. And I think that's really where that divide comes in. And I think maybe it would do some good for both sides to study some of the things that led the other side to believe what they believe, right? 
Like maybe it would do good for some of these devs to study very carefully, really in depth, right? In the same way that they analyze their protocols in depth, right? Really in depth, uh, monetary history and the history of the world. And maybe it'd do good for the Bitcoiners to, you know, to you know, enjoy themselves a little bit, look into look into the tech that a lot of the Ethereum guys are building, and just see what's what's actually going on. You know, think through a lot of the mechanics and the mechanisms, read the code, um, that sort of thing. Um, I do, you know, I want to give credit to the Ethereum guys in that. Um, I do think that as you play around with a lot of the products that are built on Ethereum, you do tend to like them better, right? And that was definitely the case for me, right? I, I was I was more of a detractor before I tried these products. As I tried them, I mean, oh, this is actually pretty cool. This is actually not so bad, you know? It definitely solves some problems. You know, it's definitely, um, you know, pretty easy to use and, you know, it's nice and you get to do what you want to do. And it's very open. You know, the, the, it's a world of open possibilities, right? I think the Bitcoin view is that the world is um, extremely oppressive and something needs to be fixed first before it can be opened, right? Well, the Ethereum guys, I think, already see the world as very open already see a lot of optimism and possibility. So we don't even really need to fix the money that badly. You know, we can already start fixing all these other problems, right? And I think that's really where the divide is. And I, I, I think that both would both sides would do good to see that um, each side means well, right? But that, that no, nobody's motives here are really that bad, right? That each side wants, um, are pursuing good ends, right? They, they just have disagreements about uh, the road to get there and what's the most efficient way. So. Um, that's why I call this, you know, crypto like family disputes. These are these are family affairs, right? This is still within our sphere, you know, uh, and we don't. And I and I do think that it is a bad thing for you know the Bitcoiners to go out and try and call Ethereum a security. I don't think Satoshi would have wanted that, right? I think Satoshi would have uh, liked his own idea enough to think that it could stand against competition, right? I, I would I would like to think so, you know, and. Uh, and you know, in, in the market, the market will decide all things. I think that's the whole idea behind you know a lot of this kind of libertarian philosophy. And I think with the Ethereum, uh, Ethereans too, I think they should uh, also consider carefully. I, I don't mind a little bit of this na this narrative of it being like more environmentally friendly, like ESG type stuff. Uh, but I think I think to do it a little bit carefully, not to overdo it to the point at which you're actually trying to suppress like Bitcoin in like a like a kind of unfair and nefarious way, right? Like if, if Ethereum is also very good, it should be able to withstand competition from Bitcoin too, right? You don't need to go suppress competition. You could just out outright beat it in the open market, right? Um, yeah, I think a little bit is fine, but you know, I think let's not go overboard either which way. This is still, uh, you know, a crypto dispute. We, you know, we don't need to get um, you know, we can sort it out ourselves, right? I mean, that's the whole idea behind being, um, trying to be more of a self-regulatory body. Maybe that's possible, maybe it's not time to tell. So, you know, that, that's what I would say. And at the end of the day, we're all on the same team, right? We have our disputes, we have our disagreements, and they, they get pretty vitriolic sometimes, but sometimes that happens. Sometimes you get into very heated arguments with your own family, right? But I think it, it does, um, it does, it does require some, you know, coolness of mind to just remember that we're all part of the same team at the end of the day, right? Like if there was some greater force externally threatening us, like there may be right now coming, yeah, we're gonna band together, right? Like at the end of the day, we're gonna put our differences aside. Well, we're, at the end of the day, we all look like idiots to everybody else, right? Anyway, we're all, we're all on the same team, right? So that's what I figure, you know? Kevin, it's been great chatting with you. Always a pleasure hearing about your insights, your learning, your experience, and how you think about the world. I'm sure our listeners will walk away with a refreshed view on crypto markets as a whole and appreciate you taking the time to come onto our podcast.
Yeah, likewise. I'll, I'll check out that book you recommended too. So just, maybe just shoot me a link uh, on Telegram afterwards or something. But uh, yeah, really enjoyed uh, having a chat with you, Young. And uh, yeah, no, I uh, definitely appreciate you having me on the podcast. If you found this episode helpful, do give us a like and subscribe. Do put down in comments anything or anyone you'd like to see in this show. You can find me on Twitter or Telegram at YoWitsYoung. That's Y-O-I-T-S-Y-O-U-N-G. Thank you for listening and see you soon.